Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, May 24th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. And as usual, I am commending to you our website at commentarymagazine.com where you can read our fabulous June issue fronted by Jim Meggs's article, Thank God for Big Pharma. Uh, with me, as always, author of the June issues piece, Joe Biden, Culture Warrior, Associate Editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And author of our media commentary column, whose title this month I can't quite remember. Reality Distortion Field. The Reality Distortion Field, Senior (laughs) Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And the man who shepherded these pieces into print, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. We're going to try something new. We're going to play Choose Your Own Topic Day. So I'm going to first turn to Christine for her topic du jour. Christine. Thanks, John. <laughs> um, actually, what's been what's been bugging me over the weekend and, and uh, I'd like to discuss is the fact that after a, a lot of foot dragging, we see some members of the Democratic Party and particularly its progressive wing finally denouncing anti-Semitism, which is, as we all know, and we discussed last week, is unfortunately violently on the rise in several cities in the U.S. right now. But of course, uh, as is their want, there's there can be no unequivocal unequivocal uh, denouncement of anti-Semitism from this group. They have to link it to Islamophobia. And uh, we were joking on our text thread that, that a memo must have gone out because if you look at the statements of Bernie Sanders, Ayanna Presley, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, uh, Julian Castro, all the, all the members of the progressive left coalition, all of them will uh, are denouncing Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Um, this is deliberate. This is reprehensible. This is an effort not to call out what is right before Americans' eyes right now with regard to the rhetoric that we see online, particularly on social media, and how it's leading to actual violence against Jews in this country. Um, there's a, a, a subtler thing that I think is also going on that I hope we can discuss, uh, which is a, a building of a narrative that support for Israel, Zionism, is itself a kind of Islamophobia. And uh, I know Abe had a great observation about this on our text thread, which which he can bring up. But but I want our listeners to understand that this was this is a crafted messaging effort by the progressive left to uh, water down denunciations of anti-Semitism by making it a kind of all lives matter moment. It's it's not acceptable and it should be called out for what it is, which is an effort to downplay the fact that that the people who are committing many of these acts are on the intersectional grievance uh, hierarchy considered themselves victims. So they will not be denounced by the, the progressive left and they should be. Um, can, can I add to that? I, I think it's even worse than that. The, the idea that support for Israel is is now Islamophobia. Because they've linked all this to Black Lives Matter, the idea is that support for Israel is anti-black bigotry somehow. Uh, yes. it, put, it puts you, it writes squarely in that camp. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> that brings us right back to 1975 and the United Nations resolution that claimed that Zionism is a form of racism. I want to talk about the shifting politics in the United States as represented by the New York Congressional District, now represented by Jamal Bowman. Uh, Jamal Bowman represents uh, parts of the Northwest Bronx and Westchester County, uh, represented for decades by uh, Elliot Engel, 
um, maybe best known uh, in American lore for being the guy who positioned himself in the House chamber uh, uh, during the State of the Union so that he could be the first person to shake the hand of the president coming down the corridor. Um, Elliot, uh, a sort of mustachioed, long-faced mustachioed guy, um, uh, was, I think, uh, chairman of the uh, House Foreign Relations Committee once uh, Nancy Pelosi took over as speaker in, and the Democrats got control in 2018 and was a classic New York representative of a largely Jewish community, himself Jewish, uh, very uh, pro-Israel. And he was primaried uh, in 2020 in the uh, AOC fashion. He was sick. He was not well. Uh, he had, you know, lost touch with his district and the district had been rezoned and he didn't do much of anything to try to keep his seat. And he lost it in a primary to Jamal Bowman, who then took the seat. And I just want to read Jamal Bowman's Twitter feed this weekend to give you a sense of the change that people have been talking about in the Democratic Party. That's a change from Elliot Engel in this seat to Jamal Bowman. So Jamal Bowman says, we've seen an increase in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate in New-, in New York City and nationwide. Hateful words, hate crimes, and other forms of violence. We must stand together to condemn hate. I- I'm unaware of any increase in Islamophobic hate over the last three or yeah, four years. I looked it up. There isn't any. It's okay. a lie. It's so, just a lie. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Targeting our Jewish family in response to international conflict is absolutely not Okay. Conflict abroad does not need to turn us against one another. This is counterproductive, inexcusable, and ignorant act of anti-Semitic hate. Then he goes on to quote an ad of by AIPAC uh, that says, when Israel targets Hamas, Representative Ilhan Omar calls it an act of terrorism. Here's what Jamal Bowman says in this same string. This advertisement by AIPAC is an act of hate. Any attempt to associate our sister Ilhan Omar with Hamas is an act of Islamophobia, and we should name it as such. Ilhan is a principled fighter who has called for accountability for both Israel and Hamas's crimes against humanity. Let us not forget that Ilhan Omar was the person who said that the reason that America supports Israel is the Benjamins, that Jewish money is responsible uh, that was the thing that almost got her denounced and then not denounced by by the House Democratic Caucus in 2019. Jamal Bowman finishes, Our path forward to a future built on care for one another can only be forged together. During moments of tension, let's reach for our best selves. We can only pave the way for that future by unlearning hate and, in its place, fortifying a foundation of mutual love. Yeah, there was a lot of mutual love that needs to be formed when people like Jamal Bowman offer apologias, excuses, and whitewashes for mobs attacking Jews in the streets of New York City, granted, further south from his district. But I will point out that just a month ago, in his district, in Riverdale, uh, four synagogues were, uh, were, were defaced and attacked. Um, and I don't remember him saying m- much about it. And so I think what you have here is a picture of the change in American politics and how, whether this is going to stand and represent the new direction of the Democratic Party or whether there is going to be blowback. 
Okay, I knew that I was having a deja vu moment around all this because it has all happened before. In 2019, you had referenced that effort to condemn Ilan Omar. So the backstory there is rising anti-Semitic attacks culminating in 2018 and the uh, uh, massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib pounding their respective drums and Ilan Omar going too far by um, saying the things that she was saying on Twitter and then being asked to apologize and then refusing to apologize with the third, third offense where she said, okay, I'm this time I'm not apologizing. She wasn't going to be educated by anybody. And the house moved to do that, to condemn anti-Semitism, which was vague, but understood to be a tacit condemnation of Omar's comments. And it died in committee as a result of the backlash of uh, the house, uh, the black caucus and the progressive caucus. And then there was the surfacing of this poster sponsored by the West Virginia Republican Party, which tied her to the 9-11 attacks. It said the, the poster said, never forget above a picture of the trade, uh, World Trade Center being hit by an airplane. And under it, a picture of Ilan Omar saying, I am the proof you have forgotten. And this resulted in this gigantic upsurge of, culmin- of linking anti-Semitism and anti-Islamophobia. The two things were somehow coupled in this, in the imagining of the progressive mind that to condemn one was to reinforce the other somehow. And then this overtook the, this is the narrative that was promoted by the squad and their sympathizers in Congress. Uh, and it, it became the narrative that you couldn't, you couldn't condemn anti-Semitism without condemning Islamophobia in the same breath. And that happened in March of 2019. And it's exactly what we're seeing now. So in that sense, yeah, the politics have changed and they changed a long time ago. And I mean, it should also be pointed out about Omar's district that it actually is uh, the the most uh, popular ISIS and jihadist recruiting place in the United States. So like, even if you want, I mean, the poster is horrible and should never, it's, they should never have done that. But it's actually factually true that she has an extremist Muslim population in her district. And there's very little she's said or done about that active recruiting that goes on uh, from from the people she represents. So, I mean, you could, you can, and her anti-Semitic statements have always, it's not just one. Remember, she went and apologized to Jewish leaders um, and they kind of accepted her apology and then she did it again. And and the, a lot of these same leaders went on record saying, wait a minute, she said she understood. She said she was going to do better and she clearly doesn't care at all. Like she, this is clearly who she is. And and the fact that the leadership in, in the Democratic Party didn't uh, call her to account for any of that is why it continues. It's why they do this because they know there will be no consequences for them. They know that media will not call them to account for it. And they know that their own leadership doesn't care. We, we find ourselves in a circumstance in which the, the house of representatives being the most representative uh, of the elected bodies uh, nationally in the United States, obviously more representative than the presidency and more representative of the Senate simply by dint of the fact that there are 435 uh, districts. Um, and and uh, there's reason to believe that the, you know, extremist polarization in, in, the, in the United States that we've been seeing in U.S. politics is really just the, the House is, is a mirror of it now. I mean, because you do have this phenomenon of uh, the squad being on the far left of democratic politics and flirting with terrorists, terrorism, apologia for terrorism. And then, of course, on the right, you have 
Marjorie Taylor Greene, now the most famous freshman in the house, um, who is, is is basically like having a, a schizophrenic letter writer to magazines as a, you know, writing in the margins where there's no, you know, white space anymore, um, literally walking around the Capitol building, you know, heckling people on the floor of the house, trashing their offices. This, this is, if you really want to say, my God, bad things are going on in America. I'm not drawing a a total parallel. I'm just saying that you have on the one hand, uh, you have this kind of lunacy on the right. And on the other hand, you have a very, very politically extreme faction that is the most fashionable faction on on the left. And Abe, you you it's, were observing an interesting phenomenon about what this may portend. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in one second. I just want to also point out that the problem is not only that um, uh, so this is happening in the House, where which, as you say, John, is the most representative um, uh, uh, part of our government. But um, squad members, for example, um, also now have an additional role in, 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 on top of their involvement in governance that, that didn't used to exist, which is they are social media stars and influencers. Um, and... Um, sort of 24-7 celebrities of a type that didn't exist anymore. And in that role, they are doing so much, I think, to change the politics through their sort of direct cultural influence, aside from lawmaking and 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 any of the work of governance. You know, it's interesting because I just want to uh, mention there's a commercial, there's a, there's a, a, a completely banal race uh, in the New York City election, which takes place, the primaries in a couple months actually in a month and uh, and the the elections in November but whoever wins the democratic primary basically wins and there's a race for the office of city controller which is a remarkably unimportant office even though it sounds very important and one of the candidates the furthest left candidate uh, is a guy named Brad Lander who is a, a member of the city council and there's a commercial for him and he has a lot of star-studded support commercial features Elizabeth Warren talking to the camera praising Brad Lander and I believe Bernie Sanders talking to the camera facing Brad Lander. But the culmination of the commercial is, it's the end, so it's the highlight of the commercial is Brad Lander standing there and someone saying, I support Brad Lander for controller and it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. More important than Elizabeth Warren, more important than Bernie Sanders in this commercial is AOC's that's how he sees it. That's how he calculates it. And that's why the commercial ends with her and not these people who got millions of votes uh, for president, which I think is, is, is pretty striking and emblematic. But Abe, you, in a, in a larger sense, something very suggestive is going on with this uh, almost explicit turn towards sympathy for the rocket firers, or at least, let's say, if, if not if not open expressions of sympathy, a lot of winking and a lot of waving and a lot of you know, I would be I would say this openly if I could. I can't really now, but this is really how I feel. So last year, with the rise of the all the 
revolutionary activity on the left in the U.S. Um, around the, the killing of George Floyd. Um, we started talking a lot, obviously, about um, parallels between w- what was going on and what had gone on um, in the 1960s in this country with the revolutionary left. Um, and one of the things that that we um, kind of uh, managed to sort of, you know, pacify ourselves in thinking was that, well, one one critical piece that's missing um, was that there was no um, foreign revolutionary cause or party um, that uh, the that the American left could romanticize and and attach itself to and um, mimic in in its in in its tactics and uh, whatever else. And um, I think we, I sort of woke up, you know, after the weekend today and said, "Oh well, well now." The left has, um, and sh- shockingly, it's it's Hamas. Um, as you say, John, it's not necessarily explicitly Hamas, but it is the it is the um, it is Hamas under the guise of the cause of Palestinian liberation that has um, now taken the place of you know Cuban and and Latin American uh, communists uh, in the in, in the '60s as the you know romantic. Um, cause du jour of the left. And there's things like, you know, in the New York Times today, there's uh, an, an, an op-ed saying that Hamas isn't really the problem. Uh, right. Well, uh, look, this is a very important point. I think it needs to, one of the darkest uh, turns that the left took in the 1960s was, okay, so there was a kind of question, was Vietnam a, a sensible, a, you know, a, a smart conflict to get involved in was it was it uh, too far, too divorced from the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union to really matter? Was it more indigenous than it was an expression of this global conflict between communism and and democracy, or between you know NATO and the Eastern Bloc? However you want to however you want to slice it, um, and and it, over time that was unsatisfying to the left that decided it didn't like Vietnam. And then it began to create heroes out of the resistance to the United States, right? That's the Viet Cong who were the fighters, who were the essentially guerrilla turncoat fighters in South Vietnam fighting for the North. And then of Ho Chi Minh and, uh, and, uh, and, and the sort of the romance of the, you know, liberationist force. Uh, uh, so romantic was it that of course, once it took over, uh, Saigon and South Vietnam and 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 incorporated them created these massive re-education camps um, and you know and murdered tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people and then millions fleed in, uh, in boats on the South China Sea but the blood was part of the point um, that that is the interesting thing about the about the revolutionary left is that um, uh, they like the blood they are they are they are you know, it's it's the it's you know Thomas Jefferson's most horrible quote, right? Which is the the tree of liberty needs to be replenished by the blood of tyrants or something like that. It's a you know Thomas Jefferson said many wrong things, and that was almost certainly the the most wrong, <laughs> the most the m- most horrible. You know, it's like an intellectual playing around with fire, and he played with fire. But this is a very big point. Like, why was Che? Why was Che Guevara? the hero of the revolutionary left in the 1960s. I mean, who was he? He was a guy who went, he went from 
he was a, a thug and a murderer, and he went from he went from Cuba to South America to try to instill revolutionary because he was a killer. What they loved about him was that he was a killer. What they what they loved about Maoism was its violence. This wasn't you know these weren't this wasn't just sort of like neurasthenic you know, intellectuals celebrating, you know, brilliant thought. They loved the blood. And then, of course, that translated into loving the blood in the United States, supporting the Black Panthers. Um, revolutionary, uh, the, the Students for Democratic Society essentially becoming, a te- you know, part of it breaking off and becoming an actual terrorist group staging assassinations, uh, you know, blowing up buildings and, you know, and staging bank robberies. And, and, and then, of course, all these others, the People's Temple, uh, you know, the Symbionese Liberation Army, I mean, all of these weird phenomena. And the violence was the point. And that's where we are on a, on a knife's edge here with the left and Hamas. And, and that is further portrayed by the fact that there is nothing about Hamas or the Palestinian leadership that is remotely liberal or leftist at all, right? From, from an ideological perspective, ex- except that it that they hate Israel and hate America, but um, you know how their their view of human relations. Um, you know uh, today's uh, intersectional left would have a very hard time living living in Gaza under under Hamas, but it doesn't matter because, as you say, the attraction is the violence, is the blood. Well, and it's the attraction is a vicarious uh, ability to see others commit violence in in a cause that they support, but they're never, I mean, uh, Jane Fonda going and putting on a, a helmet and like hanging out with the Viet Cong it was the kind of posturing that I think it was still very safe for her to do, obviously. And I think you see on the progressive left, including among a lot of the squad and other elected officials, the same sort of posturing, right? They don't really have skin in the game here. They're not the ones who are going to get beaten up on the street. They're not the ones who are going to die. They can they can posture and admire the revolution uh, because it doesn't actually affect them. And we, I mean, this is again to to pick up on Abe's earlier point about the anti racism strain of a lot of this. It is mentioned in a lot of their tweets. You know, anti blackness is is equated with anti semitism and, and Islamophobia in Cory Bush's recent tweet. Uh, but they can't, they, they don't want to talk about the current wave of violence because they're happy to denounce anti-Semitism when it's committed by, you know, what they see as, you know, white supremacist Trump voters. They cannot unequivocally condemn it when it's committed by Palestinian supporters who are themselves Muslim, darker skinned um, or African-American, even though that is actually what's happening right now. Uh, yeah, this is, um, this is a, a you know, a ter- it's a terrible, terrible moment. I mean, that's the... The, the comedy of this is, again, let's dial back 15 years to a, to a almost completely forgotten controversy when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the, um, you know, the president of Iran, was invited for insane reasons to speak at Columbia University when he came to New York to, uh, to the UN General Assembly meeting in September of, I guess, 2007. I can't remember quite, quite what year. And he was sponsored or invited or sort of by a, by an academic named Joseph Massad, who was it was in the uh, I guess it's not called this, but the Oriental Studies Department, uh, tenured professor, um, and uh, Massad uh, Massad had written uh, that um, there was no homosexuality in Iran uh, because in a regime like Iran, 
there there could be no homosexuality. It was a proper Islamic uh, regime following uh, in you know rigorous following the rigorous teachings of of Shia Islam, and, and therefore uh, homosexuality had simply been extirpated. Uh, from existence by the very fact that this regime was was in place. And you had this real war, uh, emotional internal war on the on the left uh, about whether or not Mossad, because Mossad was you know an heir of Edward Said and the sort of the uh, you know the uh, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, pro-islamic forces, uh, in, in academia, could he really be denounced for this position? Because after all, who are we to judge? To judge him would be to be Islamophobic. And uh, I, this is, gets to sort of Abe's point. I mean, Hamas is an Iranian catamite, and it exists as an arm of Iranian policy. And Iran still hangs gay people from cranes in streets so that people should see that they are they have been hanged publicly for the crime of uh you know of, of being homosexual. Um here in the United States you can't say that you think that a transgender athlete uh might should maybe not be running in a girls race without losing your job, being called off on Twitter, and possibly brought up on some kind of hate crime charge. But we have members of the House of Representatives who are implicitly offering support to people who are, are literally the cat's paws of this, of this you know, evil, barbaric regime. And, you know... These are the way, these are the many ways in which we do appear to be going back to the '60s, including the d- defenses of street crime, the defenses of street crime gangs, um, and 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 the, and the rise in crime that follows the withdrawal of the liberal establishment support for crime fighting and 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 you know anti crime techniques. And with that, let me take a break and talk to you guys about Quip, uh, the toothbrush company, and its great new gum, right? Some people chew gum to relieve stress, to curb appetites, and most important, to freshen your breath. But many people don't realize that gum can also be an integral part of a healthy oral care routine. So it was only a few short years ago that Quip reinvented the toothbrush for the modern age, and they've done it again this time for chewing gum with a new gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that'll remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid. Look, Quip can help prevent cavities and freshen breath when chewed. This gum, when chewed for 20 minutes after eating, sugar-free, tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories and to satisfy your taste buds. It's got a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri-layer design. And it comes with this slim travel-ready dispenser available in five colors, metal or plastic, that packs and protects up to 10 pieces of gum at a time and fits in just about any purse or pocket on the go. If you add a gum refill plan, you can do that for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. 
Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is a great support for your oral health when you pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush for adults and kids, refillable floss, and more great products. In addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers fresh brush head floss and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of in-store shopping. Spread good oral health habits and join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing for less than $2 a pack. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. You can also find the Quip electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and more in the oral care aisle at your local Walmart. Quip, the good habits company. Okay, choose your own topic, Noah. So my topic, um, <clears throat> which is really only sort of a half-formed thought, um, but it occurred to me over the course of the last news cycle involving a look back on the origins of the, the virus that has ground global economic and social life to a, to a halt. So back in pretty much the, the onset of this pandemic in March of 2020, the, con- the conventional wisdom among foreign policy graybeards was that China would emerge from this crisis uh, looking pretty good as an alternative model, a theory of social organization vis-a-vis Western advanced democracies, um, because it had contained the virus through technology, through authoritarian surveillance. Um, China built you know, this staggering hospital system with 2,000 beds in 10 days. Um, it looked like the pandemic was going to reinforce how the United States was and its allies were barely functional, particularly in the face of a, of a crisis, whereas China moved with alacrity and efficacy to contain and halt the spread of this virus. And that wisdom was only further reinforced when Beijing produced a vaccine to the coronavirus at a record pace and then began not only vaccinated most of its population, but then began exporting this to the developing world in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Uh, and so, you know, that sort of reinforced this conventional wisdom. And I, at, the, at the time, I remember thinking that conventional wisdom was very flawed. I wrote about it for the blog. But we've since gotten much, much more evidence of that. In part, this, this vaccine, the Sinovax, was developed through the... Uh, uh, the use of a generic coronavirus, not this coronavirus, not COVID-19. That's how they got it to market as fast as they possibly could. And why it's proving pretty substandard. For example, in the Maldives, most of the population is vaccinated with the Sinovax product, but it has failed to contain an outbreak. Uh, I think it's this Indian strain, which is pretty powerful. But as unlike its competitors, say AstraZeneca in Europe or any of the mRNA vaccines that we've developed here, which do um, block that infection or at least serious infection. So the Chinese vaccine is sort of substandard. Couple that with the evidence that we're increasingly privy to, which suggests that this thing was the product of genetic manipulation, that it was designed, didn't arise naturally. Um, And everybody who said otherwise is now eating a lot of crow, but you know, we can put aside the blame sharing for a minute to just think a little bit about the geopolitical implications. And they are pretty stark. It is that China imposed this crisis on the globe 
as a result of negligence or malfeasance. We're not sure which, but it's one or the other. Or both. And then in an effort to contain that, demonstrated uh, horrific authoritarian tendencies, and then produced a sham vaccine <clears throat> to give the world false hope. Um, all of this contributes to a, a pretty advantageous narrative from the perspective of a power that just happens to be engaged in great power competition with this country over the course of the next century, e.g. us. And it would be malpractice to not leverage that advantage. But that would mean two things. One, vaccine ex uh, export blitz, which the Biden administration seems inclined toward, but would need to actually con ramp up its its efforts um, pretty dramatically over the course of the next month, two months, no, no longer. And to lean very heavily into this notion that China did this to us. That's going to be something that would be difficult for them to do. They're not inclined towards that kind of aggressive rhetoric, particularly as we saw their effort to, to push back on this narrative when it was the Trump administration advancing it. But to lean into it would present a series of geopolitical benefits, I think. That's that some... Would that would that would benefit the United States in the long run. That's some half-formed thought. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, I would call that. I would call that a ninety-seven percent formed yeah. thought. Um, no, it's interesting. Biden has says explicitly said it. You know, to David Brooks on Friday, he said it in his inaugural speech. He said it in the speech before Congress that our competition with China is the most important fact of his presidency. And that we are talking about an effort to prove that our system is superior to their system, that we are seeding the field of the future to China, and that we need to show the world that democracy and you know human rights and all that are superior forms of governance, and that we own the future and they don't own the future. But now the question is, uh, are they going to put their money where their mouth is? And I don't mean money in terms of spending on the virus. I mean, are they going to call China out? Are they going to investigate this and blow the whistle and say, this thing that took us down was the result of, a, of an accident at a lab that was covered up, that the cover-up itself probably cost a million or two million lives because uh, the the evidence, the thing, the latest thing we heard yesterday was that three workers got sick um, in November. In November, November of twenty nineteen, right. and we and we had Wuhan been told lab workers, this. yeah, lab workers, yeah, and they they yeah they had they had been yeah they had been reporting that they didn't know that there was a virus until January, as I recall. This would mean that they knew there was a virus in November and basically it was covered up and no one knew about it. And God knows what preparations could have been made uh, had had it been known, including, by the way, the development of the mRNA vaccines. I mean, once we knew about the coronavirus, as Jim Meggs details, uh, has, has detailed for us in various pieces, um, including this piece, Thank God for Big Pharma, that's now on our website, um, it was the matter of a weekend, the matter of a weekend to develop the theory that this was the perfect thing to be used as mRNA technology. That could have been four or five months earlier. The vaccine could have been in place in September, and we would have not necessarily had the second or the third, however, whatever number you want to give to the surge that, that, that occurred in you know, November, December, January. 
So, so we're not talking about just, you know, an, a negligent escape or, you know, some horrible thing, lab accident happening. We're talking about a series of decisions in which the, the Chinese will are going to deserve blame for the death and the sickening of millions and this, you know, global economic, you know, semi-collapse. Is Biden, you know, going to like get off, get off his, you know, get out of his lazy boy enough to play the hand that he's been dealt. He said he wants to play this hand. See, but I don't believe him. And here's why. He's got a much bigger, uh, there, there's the issue of the virus and how China handled it and whether they should be called out for and investigated. Absolutely, they should. And Biden should be leading that charge. He won't. In the same way that, you know, the, the Democratic Party has no interest in discussing the fact that while you might claim our system is better and our, you know, the human rights protections we have are better than China and, you know, capitalism is better. Look at a look at a company like Disney. Disney actively coddles China. It overlooks or and uses it overlooks the fact that the Chinese are you know have concentration camps full of their Muslim minority and literally films uh, its movies nearby because I guess the labor costs are cheaper. But the the idea that the kind of woke corporate capitalism that the Democratic Party has embraced as part of its messaging and part of its you know uh, modern approach to human rights in this country. That's a clash down the line for them. They can't have it both ways, right? You can't have global capitalism as this shining beacon of hope and that act, actual global capitalist companies going to places like China and, and pretending that what we see going on in terms of genocide and ethnic cleansing isn't happening. And just look at how the administration has so far responded to the revelations that you had touched on <clears throat> regarding the November 10, November 2019 emergence of this virus, at least evidence that some people were getting sick in Wuhan around it. Um, this reported in the Wall Street Journal and the Biden administration officials they spoke with on background said of this revelation that Trump administration's administration officials had sought to, quote, put spin on the ball around this. Others described the evidence as circumstantial. And on the records, uh, State Department spokesman Ned Price said that uh, this was a fact sheet issued by the previous administration didn't, and did not draw any conclusions regarding the origin of the coronavirus. Rather, they uh, focused on the lack of transparency surrounding its origin. So they're not prepared to lean into this narrative at all. Um, and it isn't inconclusive. But the conclu- it's getting more and more conclusive that we simply don't have any other way to explain the origins of this thing. It's not evidence of in and of itself. It's lack of evidence. But that lack of evidence is particularly conspicuous for public health officials who now say, look, the evidence on the left, including Anthony Fauci, including um, uh, Scott Gottlieb, all of whom say, look, the evidence on one side of this ledger is growing and the other side isn't. At a certain point, you have to reach a conclusion around those facts. I mean, you know... It- what hap- what has happened to our politics over the last 20 years the the fact that it it sort of doesn't matter what your enemy says whatever your enemy says is wrong and a lie and a conscious lie and a knowing lie and needs to be extirpated uh this really began with the run up to the you know Iraq war and has never let up and 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 Democrats participated in it, and Republicans have participated in it, and we got to the final flourishing of it in this the the bizarre behavior of liberals and the left in response to the virus, where all they did was react to Trump. If Trump said black, they said white. If Trump said up, they said down. 
if Trump, if the Trump administration said China's up to no good, they were like, this is, this is encouraging anti-Asian sentiment. Everybody go to Chinatown and, and, and everyone, you know, lick the, lick, lick the poles on the street, uh, just to show that you're not with these xenophobic monsters. Um, and you know, clearly this is going to continue happening. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's a whole thing about, oh, we live in two different realities and all that. I, I don't think that that is the right way to look at this, that people are living in two different realities. I think that people live in a reality in which they are taking their cues from the people with whom they disagree and the people with whom they disagree control the way they think about everything. What you know you believe in is what the other guy doesn't. And what you want is what the other guy doesn't want. And this is now becoming rigorous and systematic and down the line. And this is a crazy way to do business because there were things that the Obama administration stood for that there could have been continuity with. And there are things the Trump administration stood for that could, there could be continuity with operation works warp speed being it's, you know, primary example. And um, just the loathing, the hatred of the other guy, the other side is so extreme uh, that it makes thinking about things clearly and without simply submitting to the idea that as long as so-and-so does thus and such, you know, it's wrong. And therefore, you know, I'm, I believe the opposite. Well, it's worse. It leads to policy decisions and or outright lies uh, to the American public because they can't explain away what they're doing. Look at the border crisis. First, it couldn't be called a crisis. Then a lot of the policies that the Trump administration put in place that they, the Biden administration realized they were going to have to keep if they were going to control what was going on there, they couldn't even say that. They, they, they had to find ways around it. They had to rename the, the areas that kids, kids weren't being held in cages anymore. They were being held in plastic bins. I mean, everything about it was a, a, an effort to do exactly what you're, you're saying, John. And it's hugely, it's bad enough in domestic policy context, but in a foreign policy context, it leeches from, and from both sides the ability to, to talk about moral accountability and human rights in the way that we all grew up understanding them to be. It's now kind of a sham. It's, it's, it's not that they use the same words, but they don't have the same meaning. And so that, but that kind of negative partisanship is, is also inorganic, right? It's not like the result of a, of a reasoned thought process that you arrive to on your own. You have to be berated into saying these things and believing these things because not because they're true or false or one way or the other, um, you didn't arrive at this Socratically. It's because somebody convinces you that thinking the things that you're thinking, based on the evidence that you're privy to, gives the other guy a leg up. And that's bad. And, and you know, don't forget how invested the media is in this dynamic, right? Because they chose a side here, right? So to all Trump's ups, they were the ones echoing the downs, right? Well, and, and claiming to be saving democracy in doing that, that... Right. Well, yeah. So, so for them to set the record straight on China, for example, now would mean a, 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 a doing a one eighty, you know, um, and that's very hard for them because no one reads the correction as much as the original story as is. If there is a correction, right. it was a Spectator piece the other day that highlighted a, a Vox piece that said when it was published 
that the this appearance of a coordination or a series of events that would lead to this to the leak hypothesis being borne out is a coincidence. And then it was amended without correction to say appears to be a coincidence. So there is no effort to engage in even the most basic of journalistic standards. Right. They're being abrogated, in fact. Right. Well, uh, you know, I'm almost of the view that you can totally flip uh, because nobody pays attention and you don't have to. Uh, where, where I disagree with you, Noah, is you're saying, you know, boy, the people who said that there was no leak, you know, are really taking it on the chin, like uh, Blake Hounchel of, uh, of Politico. But who's taking it on the chin? So there's some nasty tweets about him. Big deal. Is Politico taking him to the woodshed or his bosses saying, you know what, you got to go some, you got to go work somewhere else because on this most important story of, of our time, you poo pooed the eventual result. Now nah, they're not going to do that. No one's going to hold anybody accountable. You can just f- turn on a dime and I mean, just say you I, can I, understand I why we were skeptical. That. I don't remember saying that, but I, I, I would be nice to see that, but it's also beside the point. Um, this isn't about accountability anymore, not from my perspective. It's a geopolitical tool that would be right. malpractice to ignore. I don't care about accountability in the press. No, no, I'm just it's saying you, said, you said it You said it 20 minutes ago uh, right, in, um, in the course I'm, of your half-formed thought. You. I'm just saying, like, that's why I think they can turn on a dime and say, you know what, the the leak, the lab leak hypothesis is is real. And then they can do what they would ordinarily do, which is, and you know what? There have been lab leaks from the United States too, by the way. So don't <laughs> think that we're so great. I mean, we, uh, you know, and there was a lab in 1957 and, you know, three people got, uh, you know, got sick. And what about the plot of Stephen King's The Stand? That was a lab leak. Plum Island. Plum Island. Plum disease. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah. So that's. Uh, more depressing and uh but you know let me tell you something for uh for you people who are proud cat people you love your cat that doesn't mean you love having a litter box in your home right kitty poo club takes care of the more unpleasant parts of cat ownership so you can get back to loving your furry friend working from home means more time for your morning coffee or an occasional afternoon nap and of course the opportunity for your furry feline friend to walk across the keyboard in the middle of your zoom call you love having your cat around, but you don't love being around the litter box. Kitty Poo Club is a convenient all-in-one monthly litter box solution. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled to the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, just recycle the box, and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and choose from four different litter types. Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk satisfaction guarantee, and you can easily customize or cancel any time. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order, plus a free dome, free scoop, and free shipping. When you set up auto-ship by going to kittypooclub.com slash commentary, just go to kittypooclub.com slash commentary to get 20% off your first order, plus a free dome, scoop, and free shipping. When you set up auto-ship, that's kittypooclub.com slash commentary. And you guys have got to give me credit because I... My face is getting straighter every time I read that ad. Now, uh, the uh, regime in Belarus, uh, led by uh, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, who has been basically the dictator of Belarus for 25 years, I think, something like that. I saw a documentary, just to give you a sense of how long this has been, 
I saw a documentary about Lukashenko being a sort of second Hitler uh, at Lincoln Center in 1998. So uh, when literally no one in the world knew who he was, and most people don't know who he is now, but um, uh, there is a 26, 27-year-old citizen journalist who fled Belarus, was the sort of the person who was organizing whatever opposition there is to him uh, there over Telegram, which is a you know, which is a media program, uh, you know, sort of like a social media uh, network program thing that we don't really much use in the United States. Um, he fled, went into exile. He lives in Vilnius. Uh, he had gone to a conference and was going back to Vilnius and the uh, Belarusian Air Force uh, scrambled, it, scrambled a jet, forced the plane down. And in the guise of saying there was a bomb on the plane, uh, searched the plane, and everybody was then allowed to get back on the plane except for the 27-year-old citizen journalist who has been arrested and charged with espionage. Um, this is one of the most brazen acts of uh, statecraft in my lifetime, as far as, I mean, I can't think of anything that is remotely like this. I mean, there are, there are of course, the uh, occasional ideas that are expressed about how some aircraft have been shot down or destroyed by evil regimes because there might have been something going on that they wanted to cover up, including, you know, uh, the downer of the Malaysian flight, the, uh, Korea, the Korean Airlines flight in uh, 1983, but uh, never that a plane was forced to land and someone literally kidnapped off the plane. Uh this is very, very, very big. And uh, the problem is that unless something is done to punish Belarus for this, uh, this now becomes something that is a tool in the arsenal of, of, uh, of uh, what would you call it, like reprehensible state actors who will sort of do anything in their power to get their way. Well, I mean, you know, Putin has gotten away with, with killing his enemies and dissenters for so long. Um, that surely that's contributed to to the kind of safe environment for for authoritarians to do this kind of thing, right? And he of course did it. He did it in uh, or tried to. I mean, he did it in in London in 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 Great Britain, right in the West, I mean, yeah, on se- several several occasions. Um, and of course, uh, the the move is being celebrated in Moscow um, by the Putin media. Because um, Belarus is a is an ally, uh, Lukashenko is an ally. Of Putin. It's not an ally. It's a protectorate state. Right. It's a proxy. Right. It doesn't exist. It doesn't do anything, almost anything, right. without the tacit imprimatur right. of Moscow right. and the threat to uh, European Union sovereignty here, uh, represented by s- state-sponsored piracy in the in the skies, is whole and total. Um, and I don't think they understand what the threat represents. I mean, they're weighing sanctions right now, which is completely insufficient. Well, there are there are already sa- this is one the problem right. with sanctions as your tool. There are already sanctions on on, on Belarus. So, what are you going to do? I mean, the only thing to do really is to go at their sponsor, right? I mean, that if you really want to squeeze. And you say this cannot happen again. You've got to make Putin pay for the behavior of Lukashenko. And, you know, gee, last I heard, uh, 
Germany had just uh, done some big sucking up uh, to, to, to Putin uh, on the Nord Stream 2 uh, a pipeline. So, uh, you know, uh, but look, 115, 120 years ago uh, uh, in Morocco, there was a, a famous case of, uh, of, a, of an American national and there were American nationals on this plane. An American national named uh, Perticaris uh, being kidnapped by a local warlord named Rai Suli uh, for hosta for ransom money, and the uh, Secretary of State John John Hay uh, famously said uh, in 1904, uh, "The United States has one position in this matter: Perticaris alive or Rai Suli dead." And that, that was all we were going to allow. And in fact, by the way, a ransom was paid for Perticaris. Raisuli survived. Perticaris kind of defended Raisuli, oddly enough, in what may have been the first case of Stockholm Syndrome. But I mean, that was, not to, not to go too you know, pre-modern, but that was when a, a country expressed itself in absolute terms. And, you know, mm-hmm. we sent seven ships to Morocco, uh, and it was, you know, basically we forced the Moroccan government or whatever counted as the Moroccan government to solve this problem before the United States was going to invade and basically destroy, destroy Morocco um, for this one guy. One guy. Now, uh, now the- imagine if this had happened 10 months ago. <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think the popular expression of uh, how how we should remedy this assault on European interests and Western interests and democratic interests, what would have been the outcry then? Oh, I, I struggle to think that it would be as muted as we've seen so far from the West and the usual suspects for whom any and every effort to look the other way, when the uh, the Slavic sphere, shall we say, engaged in this kind of uh, disruptive, destabilizing behavior. Um, that uh, the remedy was was pretty maximalist usually. Right. And I mean, now what you see is this very tame sort of let's all just let the EU discuss its own foreign policy and maybe they'll come up with a with a firm statement. Well, they haven't been able to. They've been trying to do the same thing for China for some time now. They can't. I mean, this is a huge test, the credibility of EU foreign policy. Right. And but we certainly wouldn't have been seeing any sort of the, the calm. Let's wait and see approach would definitely not have been the case if Donald Trump were still president. I mean, the State Department, Blinken put out a very strong statement, a laudable statement, but that's where it'll end with statements. Well, because it's, this is the, the interesting thing. Very about, firm letter, Noah. It's a very firm letter. The interesting <laughs> problem with acts like this is when the Secretary of State of the United States said in 1904, "Perticaris alive or Rice dead," that was a that was a ratcheting up. Like you know, that was an act of like a single person kidnapped for ransom. No ideological. There was no ideological frame to it whatsoever uh and this is how pirates function it was like okay so are you really gonna like throw are you really gonna like throw your entire country into turmoil over one thing just pay the five dollars just pay you know pay the pay the speeding ticket and and get it over with and and get through this and that's the problem with this which is we can all see where this goes right we can see that this opens up a new avenue uh in which uh commercial aircraft uh, suddenly now become just another player uh, in, in, in world politics. And then, of course, let's take it right back to the 60s and 70s, right? That, that was hijacking was a was a, it was a, a terrorist form. tool for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Ter- yeah. 
to get people and worked. I mean, all through Europe, like uh, terrorists were released from jail in Europe uh, as a result of hijackings time and time and time again. And so, uh, you know, I I don't know. But uh, look, the EU, uh, talk about an organization uh, that, I don't know, seems to be dying on the vine, uh, mishandling the virus, mishandling the financial crisis uh, now, as well as the financial crisis in the past. Um, The fact that, uh, you know, I I mean, and now they're clearly going to mishandle this and basically mean that, you know, any European aircraft is now subject to the whims and depredations of whomever decides that they want to, you know, do you remember in the sixties? Do you remember in the sixties and seventies who used hijacking the most? The Palestinians. The Palestinians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to get Palestinian terrorists out of European exactly. jails. Exactly. They didn't do it to try to get Israel. You know, people Palestinians out of Israeli jails because the Palestinians, because the Israelis wouldn't do it, and then would hunt them down and kill them anyway. Uh, and we haven't even talked about Israel that much, but the ceasefire does seem to be holding. And with that. Uh, we will uh, close up shop until tomorrow. Please go to commentarymagazine.com and read the June issue. For Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.